On today's episode of the Dog Podcast, we'll be joined by Dr. Zachary Marquette. Dr. Marquette received his PhD in Islamic Studies from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. He also earned an MA in Comparative Religious Studies at the George Washington University and a BA in Islamic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His research and teaching focus on Islamic sacred texts, early Sufism, Sunni and Shi'i religions, and the comparative study of religions. He is the author of One God, Many Prophets, The Universal Wisdom of Islam, and the forthcoming book, And When I Loved Them, The Hadith al-Nawafil, and the Formation of Sufism. Well, Dr. Warkwit, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. It's my pleasure, Abdullah. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So before I get going with the questions that I have for you, I wanted to ask, could you briefly talk, talk about or mention your academic journey? Um, how did you get into Islamic studies? And in particular, how did you develop an interest into Sufism? So my, my interest in Islamic studies and, and Sufism uh, actually predate uh, entering university. So I initially met a group of Sufi scholars from West Africa, from the country of Senegal, mm-hmm. and they were connected to the tradition and teachings of uh, Sheikh Ahmadou Bamba, who died in 1927. Okay. He was uh, a scholar of, of jurisprudence, of tasawwuf, and also wrote, um, you know, thousands of poems in praise of God and uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And so um, through this connection, I developed an interest in, in Islamic studies, broadly speaking, and um, also Sufism or Tasawwuf. Mm. And uh, one of the scholars from that tradition encouraged me to, to enter university and um, so I started as an undergraduate at uh, the University of California, Santa Barbara. I studied Islamic studies there and also sociology and, and then uh, moved uh, eventually into graduate school where I studied um, comparative religious studies at the George Washington University with uh, Dr. Said Hossein Nasser and um, uh, Mohammed Fakfuri and others and mm-hmm. uh, focused on Islam and Hinduism. Mm. And uh, of course, you know, both of these are, are vast traditions. Um, I already had some background in Islamic studies, but, you know, Hinduism was somewhat new. I had read uh, the Bhagavad Gita and eventually the Upanishads, but, um, but really sort of focused on certain scholars and schools, including Shankara and the, the school of Advaita Vedanta or, or non-dualism. Mm. And then uh, some later figures as well, like Sri Sri Ramakrishna and um, Sri Ramana Maharshi. Okay. And then uh, eventually uh, studied, uh, worked towards my PhD at the the Graduate Theological Union in in Berkeley, and also took courses at uh, UC Berkeley um, courses on on Sufism with uh, Hamid Algar and others. Um, so my my interest um, was sort of uh, you know ongoing throughout throughout and even before my academic journey. 
No, okay. That's quite interesting, actually. Um, and the reason I ask that is because um, I recently have been really interested in the figure of uh, Mohyuddin ibn Arabi. And part of that, I've been looking into the research done by the Ibn Arabi Society. And one lecture that really stood out to me was your lecture. And that was, uh, for those who are interested, it's on YouTube. And it's titled, Jesus and Christic Sanctity in Ibn Arabi and Early Islamic Spirituality. And I just found that so interesting that I, I really had to email you and to ask you to request you to come onto the podcast because that was such, it is such a rich and interesting topic to talk about with not a lot of work being done. So I appreciate you doing that work. Um, and with that, I wanted to segue into my next question. So in particular, when we talk about the figure of Jesus, um, how does Islam view Jesus as Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as the prophet? Well, th well, thank you for, for, you know, reaching out and for that kind um, introduction. And I'll, I'll say, of course, like, like any tradition, there, there are a number of views on, on any given subject. And when you're speaking about Islam and Muslim views of Jesus, there are, of course, a number of views. But if you, if you start with the Quran, uh, you see a number of uh, terms that become central. Uh, Jesus or Isa in Arabic is, is referred to as a prophet, Nabi, and uh, a messenger. Rasul, um, but also interestingly as uh, the word of God and the spirit of God, mm. as well as the Messiah. So there's no other figure in uh, the Islamic sacred texts, including the Quran, that are referred to as the Messiah. Mm. So there are a number of, of, of um, terms and teachings that, that are shared by Christians and Muslims regarding Jesus. But there are also some differences, important differences. Um, most Muslims following um, the Quran don't believe that Jesus was crucified, mm. um, and they don't believe that he's the son of God. However, when you turn to the Sufis, you mentioned Ibn Arabi, um, there are a number of um, interpretations that that really open the door to a mystical understanding of not only Jesus, but really all of humanity and all of creation as being first signs of God, mm. but also um, names of God. So, you know, somehow God discloses his mercy, his love through the prophets, through human beings and through the whole of creation. Mm. Interesting. So the reason, again, I asked this question um, is oh, another segue into my next question, but you already kind of touched it, which is good. Um, when we talk about the importance of Jesus in Islam from a mystical or an esoteric perspective, how does Ibn Arabi see him? And how do the other mystics see him as an esoteric figure or a pole towards which Muslims may look for spiritual himma or spiritual courage? That's a great question. Um, so Ibn Arabi also follows the Quranic text very closely and, and also the Hadith. And so he'll look at these terms, word of God, spirit of God, and, you know, really draw them out. And, and, and so I think, um, you know, but, but the, the key thing in my study when I was looking at him was the doctrine of divine and prophetic inheritance, 
Mm. We're Atha. So in Ibn Arabi's understanding of divine friendship or sanctity, each person, each friend of God, takes his or her station from a particular prophet. And so when you turn to, to Jesus, um, we see this reflected in Islamic history, in you know, the, the writings uh, on, on particular friends of God, that they often resemble uh, Jesus in their qualities, um, their teachings, and even, even in reported miracles about them. So take, for example, Mansur al-Halaj, this, this famous uh, martyr um, in early Islam. He you know, reportedly said, I am the truth on al-Haq. Mm. And um, you know, it's, it's often reported that he was, he was then um, persecuted and executed because he said this. It may have been for other reasons, um, but it was certainly related to his mystical teachings that in many ways resemble the Quranic Jesus, but also Jesus as he's understood in the canonical gospels. Hmm. Um, so in Ibn Arabi's understanding, again, each, each person takes their, their qualities from a particular prophet. And for Muslims, they, they not only might resemble Jesus or Moses, or another prophet, but more generally, they, they resemble uh, the prophet Muhammad. And mm. so um, we, see, we see in those friends of God who resemble, resemble Jesus, an emphasis on divine mercy um, in, in their, their conduct, their behavior, uh, but also on inwardness. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and whereas Moses is, is often uh, characterized as emphasizing the divine law, divine rigor, and often divine outwardness. So mm -hmm. he, he had a, a luminous countenance, you know. Um, mm. And so, um, and then the prophet of Islam, at least uh, according to Ibn Arabi's perspective, he sort of harmonizes these two poles, mercy mm. and rigor on the one hand, and um, inwardness and outwardness on the other. Mm. Um, but what's important to keep in mind is that uh, people not only follow a particular prophetic sort of paradigm, but they um, also, in addition to inheriting from prophets, they also inherit vis-a-vis uh, -vis the divine names, the most beautiful names in the Islamic tradition, or um, you know the 99 names as they're often known. Mm -hmm. And so these two inheritances, one divine and one prophetic, they, they are received concurrently. Mm. Um, and so one of the ways of looking at the, the, the path, the tariqa, is, is to really become one's highest potential, mm. to become uh, like the prophet that one resembles um, and, the divine, and to inherit from the divine name that, one, um, that, is, that is our Lord, in a sense. Mm. And so... Um, when, when the Quran refers to, you know, these signs of God uh, as, you know, of course, holy books are understood as, as divine signs. Um, nature itself are, are divine signs, but also um, human beings and, and at the, the peak of, of human perfection are the prophets. So the prophets are really outward signs of our own inner nature. 
Mm. And so when we look at Jesus, when we look at Mary, when we look at Muhammad, we're, we're understanding something about our highest potential in nature. Mm. So one could argue that the prophets are essentially archetypes and those archetypes are then something to strive for, for humanity, uh, whether they embody different aspects of divine mercy or divine ju justice. Could, could, would that be a good way of looking at it? I think so. I think so. Yes. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, you know, I, I look at both, both how these figures are understood in, in the perspective of someone like Ibn Arabi, hmm. but also the historical dimension and, and, and aspect of their lives. And I think that there's, you know, some crossover between the two. Um, and, and so I think, I think one can, can strive to do both, um, you know, see them as, as spiritual archetypes. Um, and as you said, and, um, and then, you know, real historical figures as well. Interesting. Um, now, the Quran does refer to Jesus as Kalimatullah, the word of God. And Muslims typically, you know, we deem the Quran itself as the word of God. And of course, there's different interpretations as to what that word means. Uh, and that's not the topic for discussion today. But do you find that the, the fact that we call the Quran or the Quran itself is the word of God and then the figure of Jesus is called the word of God as well. Do you find some interesting con conformities or um, interesting connections there, especially in the thoughts of the mystics? Yes. Yes. I, um, I, I think there's quite a bit there and, and you're raising a, a fascinating point. Of course, early Muslim theologians had conversations about what does it mean that, that the Quran is the word of God? Is it eternal or created? So we had the same kinds of conversations about the Quran as Christians had about Jesus as the word of God. Mm. And, and, and what's interesting, of course, is that um, the angel Gabriel, uh, according to Muslim and Christian belief, is the one who brought the word to Muhammad and Mary, respectively. Mm. And of course, Muhammad was, was unlettered. Uh, and, and, and Mary a, a, a virgin. And so, um, there, there are so many parallels here. Um, but the fact that they're both understood as somehow the word of God or the divine word, um, I think opens up, um, a number of vistas for, for dialogue between the two traditions. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, we'll get back, come back to this topic of Jesus within this podcast, because of course there is a lot to unpack, particularly from the, the viewpoint of the mystics in particular, Ibn Arabi. But I also wanted to quickly touch upon a different topic and a different area which you are working on. Um, and that's the Hadith and Nawafil, or the Hadith where God essentially talks, it's a Hadith Qudsi, which means that it's on the word of the prophet, but it's supposed to be a verbatim word of God. And this hadith essentially talks about how when God loves somebody and they love him, God essentially becomes the hand by which they strike, but the foot by which they walk and so on. Um, I, I'm not mentioning the exact text of the hadith here, uh, but the context essentially being that there is this, there is an allusion essentially to this intimate connection with that God then builds with his servants, that the ones he loves. Um, 
and you you've worked on this field and you've actually in this particular area you're working on it in currently as well so i wanted you to maybe comment on this hadith um and not just comment on it but also kind of point out what are the links between early sufism and this hadith and how did this hadith essentially lay out the path towards the formation of sufism as a science within the islamic uh, paradigm yes i'd be happy to um <clears throat> so so as you mentioned um the the hadith is a hadith qudsi a sacred saying and it's it's contained in those books that are considered most authoritative or canonical by both sunnis and and shia hmm. so it's it's in sahih bukhari um and and it's also in usul al-kafi hmm. uh the two most authoritative texts for sunnis and 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 uh, shia respectively hmm. uh and you know one of the versions uh because there are actually two versions in usul al-kafi is almost identical to the version narrated um and and recorded in in Sahih Bukhari um but but for the sake of readers who don't know the the text I'll I'll read it in full um it, you know it might be might be helpful uh to to understand why it would be so significant um so it begins and 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 again this is this is um attributed to god and and spoken through the the tongue of of muhammad uh whoever shows en- enmity to a friend of mine i declare war on him my servant does does not draw near to me with anything dearer to me than that which i have made obligatory upon him and my servant continues drawing nearer to me through supererogatory acts of devotion until i love him and when i love him i am his hearing by which he hears his sight by which he sees his hand by which he grasps and his foot by which he walks if he asks me i give him and if he seeks my refuge i protect him i do not hesitate to do anything as i hesitate at seizing the soul of a believer he hates death and i hate to hurt him hmm. so that's the full text in um sahih bukhari and of course the the key lines which which really um sufi commentators um spend you know you know it, it's it's found in almost every early sufi text mm-hmm. um and and this is significant because as i'm reading through these texts one finds that that you can make an argument and in fact i make that argument that after the quran it's the most significant and central text in the development of sufism mm-hmm. uh but the key the key passage here is and when i love him i am his hearing by which he hears his sight by which he sees his hand by which he grasps and his foot by which he walks and so we see as i said it's recorded in very early uh, sunni and shi'i books of hadith mm-hmm. but then it's also found in proto sufi texts basically the writings of muslim mystics before sufism was established as a specific discipline mm um we 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 see it um going back to the writings of muhasibi um tustari uh tirmidhi and then later um when sufism starts to coalesce as is uh, basically groups of of muslim mystics start to gather in places like baghdad the school of baghdad under figures like junaid um it's also found in their writings um when junaid is developing the doctrines of fana 
and baka, uh, mm. annihilation and subsistence in God, he specifically re relies on this text. Um, and in fact, you can argue that um, those doctrines partially developed to help explain this text, mm. because in some ways it was a problematic text. It was a text that challenges our theological notions about who God is. Mm, exactly. um, because God is, is, of course, in Islam, both transcendent, but also somehow similar to creation. Mm. Well, this text suggests that, you know, not only is God similar to creation, but God can overwhelm the servant in some way. Mm. And, and so these early scholars, um, they, they took different positions on the meaning of the text. Some interpreted it allegorically, some interpreted it in what might be called a literal way. Um, but as you see in the case of Junaid, um, he, he uses the term fana, um, annihilation. And for him, that meant that the servant is no longer existent um, when God becomes their, their hearing and their sight. Mm. Um, and then again, it figures into the poetry of Halaj, um, the writings of Nefari. And then as we go through the, the centuries, um, almost every major text and figure, uh, Kusheri, Kuchwiri, um, through uh, in, in Ghazali's mature and major writings, um, Abdul Qadir Jalani, Attar, mm. and then, and then um, I sort of uh, end with, with Ibn Arabi. And, and just trying to understand how each of these figures read the text um, mm. because they, they understood it in many different ways. Mm. So if you look at the text of this hadith um, as an academic, one could argue that it, there are hints of non-dualism within the text of this hadith as well. And this, as you said, there's this emphasis on God's imminence in this hadith. Um, we also see that in, in, especially in the modern times in modernity as a byproduct of that, uh, Sufism was somehow bifurcated from Orthodox Islam, or um, that's essentially, there's trends or there's um, discourses that try to separate the Savov or Sufism, the science of Sufism from the orthodoxy. Um, and again, this, this, there's this objection that ra that's raised that Sufism is a, is a later invention, that it's not found in the early history of Islamic development. So would you argue that this hadith, and especially how this hadith was interpreted by the early mystics, that kind of overrides that objection, that no, in fact, Sufism does have a home within Islamic orthodoxy from the very beginning? Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's sort of what the text suggests. Um, at the very least, we can state that the early Sufi writers were concerned about um, using the Quran and the Hadith and the, and the Hadith Qudsi to basically uh, justify their perspectives, um, and and they they were relying on these texts. Um, not only the, the Hadith Qudsi that I mentioned, but, uh, you know, a number of uh, Quranic verses on, on divine love, um, other verses on, on God's eminence, in, you know, including um, we are nearer to him than his jugular vein. Mm. Um, uh, we, we also see that, that a number of these figures, um, almost all of them, not only studied to Sawuf, those that I mentioned, 
but they were scholars of Islamic jurisprudence, often theology. Some of them were, were consummate scholars of Hadith, um, like Ibn Arabi. And, and of course, many of them wrote um, commentaries on the Quran. And, and so we really don't see this bifurcation, you know, between Islam and Sufism or, or um, Sufism and the law, for example, mm. um, until much later in history. Mm-hmm. There, there were figures, there were early figures who challenged, um, you know, views on theology, like sort of standard views on Islamic theology, or even standard views on Islamic jurisprudence. Uh, certainly, Halaj is, is someone who, who, who challenges our understanding of what divine unity entails. Mm. Um, but from his point of view, this was, this was perfectly Quranic. It was perfectly in accord with the teachings of Muhammad as well. Mm. Okay, interesting. And um, there's also this tendency, and especially when you look at popular discourse, there is this tendency to um, compartmentalize the Sufis of the different strands. So you have this tendency where people like Junaid al-Baghdadi or Ghazali are labeled as sober Sufis, quote-unquote, whereas you have other mystics such as Halaj or uh, one could argue maybe Shams al-Tabayz um, and maybe even the Andalusian mystic Ibn Arabi. And those are essentially labeled as more philosophical Sufis. Um, do you think that this this classification of the mystics in this way, is this more of a modern construct in that that the Sufis at that time, did they themselves identif- identify as sober Sufis or more philosophical Sufis, or is this a an anachronistic labeling of those mystics? And with that, with this labeling, do you think that there is some merit that initially as Sufism developed within the Islamic world, it was more, you know, quote unquote, sober, and then later on, it developed into more a philosophical, um, philosophical, metaphysical system. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. Um, I, I, I don't think that, that this is entirely a modern construct because we see some of these terms, variety and drunkenness. Um, but of course, drunkenness was understood as a spiritual state uh, by, by the vast majority of, of Sufis. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they were, most of them weren't consuming alcohol. Um, we, do, we do see that the, this, this is understood um, as, as sort of states of being. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, a hal is, is sort of a state. Um, and, you know, but there wasn't a... a firm line between, you know, who could experience these. So I'll give you an example, like Abdul Qadir Jalani, who, um, one of the most famous eponyms and founders of, of really the, the first, uh, one of the first, uh, Sufi orders, um, the Qadariya order. He was a well-known and respected scholar in Baghdad, uh, teaching, taught before thousands of people gave, gave regular sermons at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, yet in his youth, he, he, he says he experienced ecstatic states and would go into ecstatic states. Mm. Um, and so it's, it's, it was sort of understood as something that, that anyone could experience at times. Um, and, and those who were sober um, often would describe an inward ecstasy that they wouldn't allow to flow over into their outward actions. 
Mm. Um, so, you know, it really depends on the individual and the person. Um, Ibn Arabi uh, is someone who seemed to, to value both states, um, but would generally, you know, see those who would allow the ecstasy to flow over into these sort of ecstatic scenes as um, sort of neophytes uh, on the spiritual path. But, mm. but this opinion wasn't universally shared. So there were, there were many who, who regarded Halaj and Bistami and others as, you know, the like sort of the pillars and exemplars of, of Sufism. Mm. Okay, that's understandable. Um, I'd like to go back to the topic of Jesus and in particular Jesus in the, the thought and the writings of the mystics of Islam. And you mentioned before that uh, there is a connection between those prophets and then uh, the, you know, the prophets Moses and the prophets Jesus and the other named prophets in Islam as well, and the tradition of sainthood in Islam. So you have certain saints who might embody uh, Christic tendencies, whereas others might embody mosaic tendencies in the sense that when we're talking about archetypes. Um, and you mentioned Ibn Arabi, an example where he talks about that. Uh, did other writers, other Sufi writers talk about this as well, the connection between sainthood uh, and the archetypes of the prophets? Yes, yes. Um, I think in, in Ibn Arabi, um, it's a bit more um, systematic or elaborated upon, but it's, it's certainly alluded to in other texts. It's alluded to in Rumi. Um, it's, it's, you know, and, and then, you know, as I said, all of these scholars were taking their, their sort of, perspectives from the, the Quran and the prophetic teachings. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it even goes back to very well-known hadith. Um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the prophet tells his son-in-law Ali, are you not pleased that your position in relation to me is that of Aaron in relation to Moses? And then we also see um, a, a well-known compa compa companion, Abu Dhar Ghaffari, who was referred to uh, as, as being similar to Jesus by, mm. by the prophet. Mm. And then there's, um, you know, a well-known hadith, the, the scholars or the sages are the heirs of the prophets. Mm. Um, so this, this understanding was, was present um, in, in very, very early texts, the earliest texts that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, and then carries over into, um, you know, the tradition as a whole. And mm -hmm. I, and, and then I think certain, certain Sufis really pick up on it, but it's mm -hmm. not only because of texts. Um, even Arabi claims that as, as a, a young man, really a teenager, he, the first, um, spiritual encounter he had before he met his first living teacher was actually a dream that he had with Jesus. Wow. And he says that because of that dream, he turns back to God more ardently. Hmm. Um, and, and Jesus refers to him as his beloved. Wow. Uh, and then he has dreams, subsequent dreams throughout his life of other prophets. Hmm. And he eventually realizes that he inherits um, from Jesus and Muhammad. Hmm. So um, there's a textual tradition, which, which um, you know, we can sort of trace this back. 
but then there's what might be referred to use the word archetypal um Henri Corban also uses the term imaginal, mm. uh, the, the sort of the place of dreams and visions. And, and Ibn Arabi was inhabiting both of these worlds, the textual and the imaginal, simultaneously. Wow, that is such a beautiful way of putting it. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dr. Markwood. Um, I have one last question for you before we uh, conclude our podcast. And of course, before we ask you to share any final thoughts, um, you know, we talk about the figure of Jesus and quite possibly Jesus might be the most um, well-known and followed figure in, in, the, in human history, essentially, one could argue. Um, of, course, of course, the Christians, you know, they have a relationship with Jesus and so do the Muslims. So why do you think it's important uh, to gain a deeper understanding of the Islamic Jesus today for both Muslims and Christians in an attempt to build bridges? Um, why do you think that's relevant today? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, if you just look at the demographics of, you know, people in the world, there are 1.9 billion Muslims. We make up 25% of the world's population. And Christians are, of course, the most numerous group. So together, we're over half the world's population. Hmm. Uh, and um, there being peace, fellowship, understanding, between the, the, the two communities, I think is, is key. Mm. And, and as we study our texts and traditions, we, we can find that we have more in common um, than, we, than we do that, that differs between us. Mm. Um, and, and when you go into these texts, you sort of see that you, you get a richer understanding of each, each prophet, you know, as you study the Quran and the, what the Quran has to say about Jesus, what Ibn Arabi says, what Rumi says, um, but also what the the writers of the gospel have to say. Mm. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most beautiful texts that we have, in from my perspective, um, and and but also non canonical texts mm. about Jesus. The you know the Gospel of Thomas, for example, mm. um, you know, and and you know. Of course, certain certain texts are going to be more central for each, you know, community. Hmm. But but by delving into them, we can we can see, for example, that you know both both Christians and Muslims believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Hmm. Um, both of them regard Jesus as the Word of God. Hmm. Um, and and then when you go into these mystical teachings, uh, um, you know. It's it's not only that um, you know uh, I I'll give you some examples I mean I mean Christians have also found great spiritual depth in in uh, Islamic mystical teachings in general but in relation to Jesus people like Louis Mazignon the French Catholic scholar who studied Islam mm. he dove. Uh, you know, as as deep as one can go into the life of of, of Halaj, wrote this four volume encyclopedia, and mm. and really saw these parallels between what this Muslim Halaj, who he was, mm. uh, what he became, and and how he died. Um, he he saw the reflection of of the Quranic Jesus and the Jesus in the Gospels. Mm. Um, likewise, in the you know. Uh, Thomas Merton, um, he, he was studying uh, Sufism and, and I think 
you know, was able to, to really appreciate certain, certain figures and texts. Um, and, and on the Muslim side, you know, we, you know, as we study our mystical traditions, um, we can come to appreciate that, uh, that, that, you know, someone like, like, like Jesus, um, that, 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 that there, you know, there, there's, there's something of value in, in Christian teachings. Mm. Um, you know, because when you go into, into the doctrine of Ibn Arabi, mm. um, you know, it's not only his doctrine of, of sanctity, it's also his doctrine of, of unity, um, Tawheed, his doctrine of, of prophecy, Nabua. Mm. Um, you, you know, one could argue that, that all of these essentially, you know, go back to the, the earliest texts and, and traditions. And so, you know, by way of example, you know, I mentioned that his doctrine of sanctity goes back mm. to these, these hadith, um, the doctrine of unity, um, you can argue that his doctrine of unity uh, is really based on the Shahada. Mm. From his understanding, everything in creation is simultaneously hua la hua. Mm. And by that, he means um, he, not he. Uh, everything is simultaneously a disclosure of God, um, yet non-existent if when viewed in relation to the the self or the ego. Mm. Um, and, and, and this perfectly, um, maps onto the, the, the Shahada, mm. um, la ilaha illallah. There is nothing, uh, you know, there is no God except for God, um, mm. which is essentially the same thing as saying, uh, hua la hua, mm. um, you know, and, and likewise, uh, his doctrine of prophecy, which, which was also written about by Abdul Karim Jihli, hmm. um, uh, you know, the, the universal human, uh, the insan al-kamil, is essentially a commentary on uh, Muhammadun Rasulullah. And so, so I think as we go deeper into these doctrines, um, we can appreciate how uh, someone like Jesus, but also Muhammad, Moses, Abraham, all of the prophets, they somehow manifest this mystery of things uh, being simultaneously uh, hua la hua, right? A disclosure of God on the one hand and, and non-existent on the other. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's a very, very amazing way of putting it. Dr. Marquit, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for coming on to the podcast and thank you for enlightening our guests with all the knowledge that you brought. And I really hope that you can join us again and talk in detail about the topics that we, that we talked about today. Thank you so much, uh, Abdullah. It's, it's really uh, been my pleasure to join you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.